Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today, the tables are turned on the Psychology Podcast as Andrew Yang interviews me. This conversation, which originally appeared on Andrew's podcast, Yang Speaks, is a really meaningful one for me, as I was a big supporter of Andrew's presidential campaign, and now I'm a big supporter of his mayoral NYC campaign. Andrew and I share a very similar humanistic viewpoint, and it was great to finally get together in a discussion with him about the need to reimagine education and my revised hierarchy of needs. Without further ado, I bring you my discussion with Andrew Yang. It is my pleasure and privilege. I've been looking forward to this ever since uh, uh, he and I connected to welcome to Yang Speaks, psychologist, author, actualizer of human potential. Pretty much everyone who wants good things uh, in their lives should be listening to this man, Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott, welcome to the to the <laughs> podcast. What a, what, a, what a dream this come true this is for me. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I felt the same way. Uh, you're, you're such uh, an incredible thinker and your work is so up my alley. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. Likewise, it's bi-directional. Yeah, I agree. I feel like both of us have been uh, approaching some of the same problems from kind of different angles, but would love for you to introduce yourself so that people can get a sense of uh, your background. You have a PhD in cognitive psychology from Yale. You studied uh, in the UK. Um, I think you have like a BS in also cognitive science from Carnegie Mellon or, or one of these other very, very frankly, like esteemed institutions. Um, but tell us a little bit more about yourself, like how you arrived at that point and how you became passionate about uh, studying how people, frankly, can be like happier, healthier, stronger. 
Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a humanistic psychologist and I have a training in cognitive science, um, but I'm really interested in understanding what it means to be human, what it means to be a vital human, to live a life of meaning and purpose and creativity. And um, I really got interested in this topic as a young kid when I was put in special education for a learning disability that I had. And I felt as though the kids that were in the classroom with me in the special ed classroom were capable of so much greater things than anyone gave them credit for. And do you have a sense as to why they they, um, put you there or identified you in that way? Yeah, well, I had an auditory uh, processing disability um, that just made it uh, hard. I had a lot of fluid in my ears, so it just made it hard for me to process things in real time. I have a friend who's who, who had a son who had that issue. And then, you know, like his teachers categorized him as like... Um, you know, like having a learning issue and really you just couldn't hear stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's all it was, yeah. And they took that extra couple milliseconds as some sort of indication that I was stupid. And uh, not only that, but I was also like, I definitely was an oddball in terms of my creativity and my imagination. Like when all the other kids were sitting in the circle listening to the teacher read a story, I was running around in my Superman cape. So there definitely were, I de- they didn't know what to do with me <laughs> for sure. But um, I was put in special ed. And I just, I remember even at a very young age, that I just thinking to myself, you know, there's got to be um, a way to show the teachers and parents what my friends are capable of here in special ed. I mean, they're capable of so many amazing things. Uh, and then, you know, I got into this field wanting to study intelligence. And so that was my entryway into the field was the cognitive science of intelligence and IQ testing. Wow, this is a very fraught topic. Now, now, I mean, um, and you, you were ahead of the curve because you've been studying this for decades at this point. So tell us more. Well, I, so I was kept in special until ninth grade. Um, and I remember just sitting there bored out of my mind. We we're supposed to be taking untimed tests. They would remove me from the mainstream room history, uh, history classroom and put me in a special room to take an untimed test. I remember thinking to myself, like, if this is untimed, I have the rest of my life to finish this test. So I'm like checked out like this is boring. And a special ed teacher took me aside who had never seen me before. And after class, she just said, I think I see you. It was like a terrifying moment. I was like, what is she seeing? But she's like, you know, I think that, um, you know, why are you still here? You know, I can tell that you're, you're, you're clearly um, uh, not challenged. And it quickly turned from like, why am I here to like, yeah, why am I here? And I called my mom. I ran to the payphone and I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, I'm not, I'm not reporting back to special ed ever again. Um, and she's like, can we talk about this when you get home? But um, I set up a school, uh, a whole meeting with like the school superintendent and uh, and the school wow. psychologist and everything. Because I was the first one in like Warmering High School, dis- you know, the school district to break out of special ed I was, I was the first one to come you know this stu- the student themselves say you know what i'm out of here <laughs> and they said we'll let you out on a trial basis <laughs> which didn't feel like a great vote of confidence they said like if you get out and you fail all your classes you're coming back <laughs> so i said okay well i'm gonna prove you all wrong and i and in one semester i went from a d remedial i wasn't supposed to ever go to college to like straight a honor student in one semester <laughs> Yeah, and then you kept uh, putting up straight A's, I assume, for a while to, to go to, you know, a place like... Except Carnegie for Island. dance class. Except for dance class in college. Um, I got to see. Yeah. Uh, well, you had a dance class at Carnegie Mellon, which I did not know. <laughs> well, well, there's... Well, <laughs> Actually, so this is more. This is more to the story. This is kind of interesting. The reason why I was in dance classes is because I was so determined to study intelligence and psychology that I went and I uh, auditioned for the opera program at Carnegie Mellon, so I could still get into Carnegie Mellon. I, it turned out uh, that I had some music talent. Uh, my grandfather was a cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and I was taking voice lessons. And I sang my heart out, and I got a scholarship to Carnegie Mellon for my opera singing. 
And then I transferred in through the back door to psychology once I got there. That's incredible. Um, so you were such a talented singer that you could actually get yeah. into a college on that basis. When did that talent become evident? After I got out of special ed in high school, I signed up for everything because I became, I was like, what am I capable of? You have to understand, Andrew, I had no, prior to that moment in at my education system, I only viewed myself as this disabled, broken kid, you know? And then, wow. so I signed up for everything. I, I signed up, I was like, I'm gonna do West Side Story. I'm gonna do this and this. And, and I was joking one day with my friends uh, I had a friend who was in the choir and I was I was in there and I was joking because I I was like you all sound like this oh and then the, the choir teacher was like that's really freaking good like are you an opera like do you have training and I was like no I'm making fun of you all <laughs> and she and so it turned out like you know um, I actually have an apparatic voice and who knew who knew and then I started to take some lessons and I fell in love with like Les Mis and my dream was to be Javert and that was this the, my audition song at Carnegie Mellon was stars from Les Mis <laughs> what a story um, so then when you went to college on the basis of your musical talent did you know the entire time that you were going to frankly divert your energies from music to um, uh, these other pursuits? Or did you show up thinking, maybe I will make a thing of this music uh, uh, career and then go to Broadway and the rest of it? Was that a thought? There was a thought that if I never got into the psychology program that I, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just be on Broadway. That's fine. I'll settle. I'll settle for Broadway. <laughs> but, um, but what happened is I discovered, um, I took a course on cognitive psychology with Anne Fay um, uh, at, at Carnegie Mellon. And I was reading this textbook and uh, and I got to this this the chapter on intelligence, and it was um, it, it, Howard Gardner calls this a crystallizing experience. There's this moment in your life where you suddenly realize, oh, that's what I'm meant to be doing on this wow. earth. Wow! And I looked at the front cover, and it said uh, Robert Sternberg, Yale University. You know, who was the author of the book? And in that moment, I said, that's it. I'm going to study with Robert Sternberg. I'm going to do everything that it takes. I'm going to like be the grittiest mother beeper, and I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. But I'm going to be the the, sure. the, 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 grit, the grittiest person, you know, be uh, person ever, and I'm going to make it into Yale and study with Robert Sternberg because he's he he just he he just inspired me so much with his thoughts about intelligence. Then he had creative and practical intelligence. He said were important in addition to analytical intelligence. And I said that's exactly what I've been saying since I was five years old. <laughs> there are these ideas you have out there, and then when someone puts it into a term, you're like, yes, yeah. and it's such a gift to that's the world. It. Um, I, I try my best to take advantage of that in, in ways big and small. Where, as an example, um, when I'm um, on a team and then someone says, like, hey, we should do this particular project and I get excited about it, my first move is to name the project. Because as soon as you name something, then it becomes much more real to people. Um, so two of the first steps I take are, number one, you name it. And then number two, you look at someone and say, and now you are going to be responsible um, for a project, uh, you know, red table or whatever it is. <laughs> so it's great that you encountered that, um, in professor Sternberg, um, yeah. and then you got hooked and you ended up getting hooked. a PhD from Yale, uh, like studying with him. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I did a cold email. I said, can I be your personal assistant intern for free over the summer? I'll come to Yale, do anything you want. Um, I was doing that with everyone. I was also studying. I don't know if you have you ever heard of Herbert Simon, the, the Nobel Prize winner? Herbert Herb Simon, he studied, uh, he came up with sat the idea of satisficing that most people don't actually choose the best decision. They, they're like good enough. They choose decisions that are good enough. He's right. Give that man a Nobel Prize. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he, I mean, it was a, 
brilliant idea, you know, at the time, because believe it or not, economists at the time had no, didn't, didn't even, it didn't even dawn on them that that's how humans make decisions. They just assumed that the humans were maximizers. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? No, we're not. We're, we're not maximizers. We're definitely satisficers. I studied with Herb Simon and uh, he took me under his wing as well. And I was just like, teach me everything. I just like everyone I could find. I said, teach me everything. I cold call, cold uh, emailed the head of uh, this Cambridge University psychology department. I said, can I just like take off a year of Carnegie Mellon and go to England and will you teach me everything about IQ? He was one of the leading IQ researchers. And I thought that I, it'd be really cool for me to keep my own past a secret and not tell any of these IQ researchers about that, like their tests are what limited me in my life, but just try to learn the truth and just try to like, just like make a contribution to the field. So they would take me seriously someday so that I could then change the field. But I knew that I had to learn the classic, so to speak. It's a very patient approach, Scott. It's a very impressive, patient approach. Determined. <laughs> determined. One of the very large aspects of the way that our kids get measured in school is really their ability to conform to whatever behavior is going on around them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like if, if you're not sitting quietly in the circle or, you know, repeating back what you need to repeat, then that's actually a very, very serious problem, um, you know, in a, in a school setting. And you can easily find yourself... Um, put in, in special ed or some other category um, be, because of those kinds of issues. And then the, the second thing, and this is not you, but I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs um, and a shockingly high proportion of them were dyslexic as kids. It's actually true of some entertainers too. And so uh, these kids who are dyslexic, they come to the classroom, like they have trouble processing information the way that other people do. Teachers think that they're like completely useless, you know, <laughs> like, like useless and like don't, um, you know, like, like shouldn't be anywhere near anything. Um, uh, but then a lot of them wind up finding really creative ways to do their schoolwork, uh, to do projects, to get things done. And then a shockingly high proportion of them wind up becoming very successful entrepreneurs because they just apply that to the real world um, in a particular way. There's something going on with our school system where it's rewarding a certain degree of uh, behavioral conformity and a particular form of intelligence. And then if you're uh, another type of human um, you can easily find yourself relegated to this, like, oh, you know, never go to college, like, might as well just prepare yourself for, you know, like a, a particular type of life um, uh, kind of tracking system that I know that I'm sure you're like violently against given both your experiences and your work. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of gifted education. You know, I'm not um, anti-intelligence. I'm not anti-ability or talent. But I think that we have very misguided notions of um, the different pathways that one can achieve giftedness and one can achieve their ultimate dreams in their lives. We have very narrow um, uh, sort of metrics. And I, I, I've been arguing for a, a humanistic education. Uh, I call it humanistic education that treats students as human first. Uh, I, I think you might might like yeah, this Yeah, I might idea. recognize that. My presidential <laughs> campaign slogan was humanity first. When you saw that, you were like, did they take it from me? Acknowledgement, well, please, I, Yang. <laughs> I, I've been saying that for 10 years. <laughs> but, but 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 that's why I was like I was I mean I'm so I was so on board I don't know if you saw all my tweets I was like go Yang go Yang when you were running for president I was definitely supporting the heck out of you but um but no I'm really all about a uh, a school system that treats students um, not as like what score they could appear on a test but that views them as the totality of who they are and sometimes that does include intelligence so I'm not um. 
uh, I'm not one of these a extreme anti-IQ kind of uh, researchers. I think that there are kids who have extraordinarily high IQs and they're not served well by the school system. My argument is more that no students are being served by the school system. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's <interesting>. <laughs> <laughs> so you've now written several important books that each put forward very important ideas um, uh, and I, I think one of your um, earlier books talked about what you call the dual process theory of human intelligence, um, which struck me as related to this idea of um, the fact that there are different forms of intelligence than this kind of very linear um, academic analytic that we measure, um, particularly through uh, standardized tests and the like. Um, and so was this your original research? Uh, was this something that you... Um, developed uh, over an extended period of time um, alongside other, other folks who've been looking at this for, for a while? Yeah, this was an, an insight that I had when I was doing my PhD work. Um, I knew that I wanted to go beyond the standard metrics of IQ, but I wanted to do it in a very systematic way that would earn me the respect of my fellow intelligence researchers. I didn't just want to like say, you all are stupid, <laughs> you know, like, like the whole field sucks. No, I wanted to actually do something meaningful. And when I was looking to the literature, it dawned on me that almost all these IQ tests are all at the conscious level, like conscious reasoning. And, and, it always, and there are people who seem to intuitively learn things that um, they were never explicitly taught. Is this related to what people call street smart? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Know. Yeah, you know what? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a core component of street smarts, absolutely. But it's also the core component of social skills, you know, yeah. being able to like learn the patterns of the social, but also just like beauty, nature. I mean, it goes deep. It's, 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 there's these, there are these deep unconscious learning mechanisms that we share with other animals. You know, other animals aren't, aren't, aren't good at IQ tests, but they're intel they still have an adaptive intelligence you know we we do have these really intelligent um systems unconscious intuitive systems and my question that i was curious about is um what is the relationship between those who are really quick at picking things up intuitively versus those who are good at IQ tests. And my hypothesis was that they'd be uncorrelated. Now, this was, a, believe it, this was a, believe it or not, this was a controversial hypothesis because intelligence researchers had been studying IQ for 100 years and they said, forget it. You're never going to find anything that's not correlated with IQ. We, no one has ever, and I said, I think I found something. So, okay, so I created this test and I published this in uh, the, our flagship journal called Cognition where I reported a zero correlation between intuitive intelligence ability and IQ ability. Wow. And it's like, I called, I was so excited. I mean, this was like really exciting. I was like, Very I made a contribution wow. to the field in some way. I mean, that's all I wanted to do was just like to be like considered, uh, you know, uh, like I could make a, a real intellectual hefty contribution to the field. My father um, was a professor. Uh, my grandfather was a professor. My uncle was a professor. My brother is a professor. Um, so being a professor is kind of the family thing. Um, I'm kind of the uh, academic runt of the litter. <laughs> so, so I just wanted you to know that I understand when you say like I wanted to make an intellectual contribution because when you're in that environment, like you want to put forward like a big idea or finding that is novel and groundbreaking. It's funny though, because you know, when looking back on it now, it's like I put so much work into to impress five people. <laughs> like, you know, like it's not like, you know, the, the amount of people working in that really narrow niche of the field, like maybe five, you know, five people that I impressed. You made this, uh, this discovery, um, uh, or you, you found that intuitive learning was uncorrelated, yeah. um, you know, with this other more standard measure. 
Um, and so like what that happened then, was there like this massive uh, level of attention? It opened up a whole world for me and that world is called creativity. So what I discovered once I discovered was able to operationalize and, and actually measure in a, in a reliable and valid way this it what this in, intuitive intelligence kind of ability, I found that it was predicting um, forms of creative achievement in particularly in the arts. Much, much wow. more than IQ. Much, much more than wow. IQ. Wow. This is like this sort of creative dimension yeah. test. Wow. Or measure, yeah. not test, measure. Yeah, an indicator, yeah. It got the interest of um, uh, a bunch of people. Uh, so my uh, Colin DeYoung was a postdoc at Yale with me at the time, and his grad student was a man called Jordan Peterson. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of that guy. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And, he, and so he hops on board. We get this published, and this paper, show, um, this follow-up paper. So I, had, I did that initial paper, but then I did this follow-up paper showing um, that um, – that if you want to predict the arts achievement, it really is all about this openness to experience. It's all about this ability to um, really um, go uh, uh, be open to your kind of inner emotions and, and appreciation of the patterns of beauty, you know, and these sorts of things. And that is that's an important skill that we don't even we don't even like appreciate as important at all. We definitely do not, brother. I mean, uh, that that is for sure. I was around kids. Um, when I was young, um, at these things called nerd camps, uh, they were run by Johns Hopkins. So it's like the opposite extreme of kids who, frankly, you know, did very well on on various standardized tests. Um, and then you talk about how folks who are more intuitively um, uh, intelligent uh, maybe have degrees of social skills or creativity or you know, let, let's call it like you know, judgment or problem solving things like that, like these were the nerdiest kids ever. Like, uh, it, and I was right there with them. You know, it's like, I'm not excluding myself. Um, but if, if you were to uh, put them into, put us into a situation that required some degree of like intuitive problem solving or social skills or, or whatnot, like we would have all been atrocious. Uh, like it, it was the most socially awkward group of um, adolescents and pre-adolescents that one can imagine, like just straight out of whatever stereotypical um, you know, thing you, you, you uh, have, I mean, you know, back in the eighties at uh, that time would be like kind of revenge of the nerds type material. Um, <laughs> so, so there was always I get the, this, this I get feeling it. that there was like some sort of like an inverse relationship between like a degree of book smartness and, and um, social skills and um, street smarts or common sense. Well, Andrew, you know, I did go to Carnegie Mellon and I, the, one of the nerdy, I mean, I felt at home I finally felt like I came home. I actually then added, I don't, I don't really, I don't think I've ever told this on a podcast, but I actually ended up adding on a computer science degree from there as well before I left. Um, I was just like, I felt so at home with the nerds. And I, I mean, I joined a fraternity, but it was like, we're nerds in a fraternity, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so I, I, it was, it was a real nice feeling coming home. And, and also it can be comfortable to be a nerd and to be among your friends and not have the pressure to have social skills. So there's a wonderful thing about removal people being, of right? the pressure yeah. to have social yeah. skills. Yeah. yeah that that's, yeah. that pretty much sums it up. It's true. You yeah. know, like yeah. uh, it's, it's a uh, wonderful thing. So after you'd identified this um, other measure or scale of, of intuitive intelligence, like I, I feel like that would have led to like a lot of other research, uh, a lot of um, uh, other folks trying to dig in and see if there were other qualities that they could have a measure for. Is that correct? There was a turning point in my life where I was teaching at NYU right after I graduated, and I was doing that kind of uh, research. But then Martin Seligman, um, who's the founder of the field of positive psychology, have you heard of Martin Seligman by any chance? Yeah. 
Okay, uh, cool. And I generally love positive psychology. Oh, cool. So he's like the founder of the field and uh, he just put like plucks me up. He's like, hey, we're starting a new center uh, called the Imagination Institute here at Penn. Do you want to run it? <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah. So I just quit everything. I was like, peace, NYU. You know, and I and I and this was great because keep in mind, I was born and raised in Philly. So this was a chance for me to come back and be closer to my parents. That is pretty awesome. And so, so that really, you know, things happen in life that are unexpected. You know, you don't expect, you know, Martin Selby to, you know, be like, hey, do you want to, do you want to, I think you're the man for the job. So I ended up for three, I spent four years of my life at Penn and I studied and my whole research interest and everything shifted so focused on what is the human imagination and how does that, um, we, we were curious in how that differs from like intelligence, for instance, for instance, in the brain. And we published some neuroscience studies on this, but we also funded um, a lot of uh, researchers to come up. We held a, a call, open call for everyone in the world um, who can come up with the next imagination test, like creativity test, um, you know. Um, and so we funded like 15 projects. So we also went um, and had about 10 different domains of human endeavors we brought like the most famous like most imaginative people across different fields uh, from humor to math to physics um, to, to a wide range of things to spirituality um, and we had these imagination retreats where we scan their brains and then we try to understand what the special sauce of creativity is wow so that, that was four, four years of my life four years of my life yeah so what do more human-centered schools look like in practice um, have you ever come across the future project by, by any chance yes there's an educational organization um, where they put in a uh, office of a dream director in the school system. And any student can go to the office of dream director and say, well, this is my dream. This is, you know, I have this idea or this this goal. Like I want to end bullying. I want to um, I want to make the world a better place. And the dream director is like, great, let's help get you there. And they help give mentors and resources to help them realize their projects. Um, this, the kind of shift I want to make is a shift from a, a culture of evaluation to a culture of inspiration. So that's kind of my tagline from evaluation to inspiration. Um, because we're, we spend so much time in our school system right now evaluating, evaluating, evaluating that we have no time left over to actually activate the potential at all. It's like, it's like what are we doing here, people? You know, like we're, we're devoting like virtually 100% of our time to be like, okay, um, you know. Uh, here's stuff. Did you learn it? Here's stuff. Did you learn it? Here's stuff. Did exactly. You learn it? Yeah. Exactly. Here's your test. Here's your score. Here's your score next. Here's your next score. Here's your next score. It's soul. It's not, it's, I mean, it, for these students, it's, it, it's soul sucking right so i want to kind of put the soul back into or the human the human the, that that might have sounded too woo woo but i want to put the human human back <laughs> in, into the education system where we treat students as humans first and i think that we could have self actualizing schools where the schools um uh care first and foremost about the self-actualization of the students, not the test scores of the students. And of course, knowledge is important. I mean, I, I'm not trying to make this extreme argument and say, you know, no math forever. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not saying that. Don't worry. You can calm down. I know you like math. Um, I, I do too. Well, well, one of the things I just want to let you know, like, um, you know, I'm very open to the fact that, and this is data-driven, um, is that uh, arts and drama um, really help kids. <laughs> you, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like college readiness goes up. Interest in college goes up. Uh, you know, like like that. So, um, you should know. I'm very, very open to the fact that um, arts and creativity should be um, central uh, in our education. Particularly, as most people know, like if you're concerned that 
um, AI and, and technology are going to do a lot of um, rote tasks. And so, you know, trying to teach our kids to become um, better uh, processors and, and robots themselves is probably a loser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, so like I, I'm, I'm, I'm not... Um, just like this pro-math person and on that front. There's a whole new emerging field of positive education as well that has various pillars. So if you tackle... Uh, positive education is a good tagline. Just like positive mm -hmm. psychology is a good tagline, positive education. Because a lot of education does seem kind of negative right now. It really does. Which do you like better, humanistic education or positive education? Positive, somehow. You know, you ought to be funny. Maybe instead of humanistic, you'd just be like human education. <laughs> like that, that actually makes me laugh. But, but there, there is something to that word. I mean, I obviously love the word human. Like, you know, again, it was like one of our main ideas. But, but to me, like human education, um, like there is something inhuman about our educational system right now. I mean, that, that, that is right. happening. Well, maybe we need a positive humanistic education. Like let's get but, all the but words positive in Positive education is good yeah. because there is also a sense that our current educational system is a little bit negative. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, conformist. Um, it's preparing kids for an economy that really has not existed for decades. And, you know, like there are other things like that that you can look at about our current system. Uh, well, it's incredible. You've become like this champion of creativity, imagination, intuition. Um, and, and it really is like at a whole different axis than a lot of our current um schools are teaching at so what is that movement looking like like what is that energy so you've got like um uh seligman and penn you've got like but like what what does it look like writ large and and who are the, like the major figures in addition to you that are trying to push things in in a more human direction so they have big positive education conferences, you know, with like thousands, thousands of people from all over the world, you know, come to these conferences. Um, but, it, you know, if you if I can get, just give some shout outs, Peggy Kern over in Australia is um, leading the way of positive education in Australia. Um, it's for some reason, England and Australia, in addition to the U.S., are the ones that are most um, interested in positive education. And, um, you know, virtually all of Australia and England uh, educators come to these conferences. Um, so that's really big over there. Um, but there are certain schools, like even in Philadelphia, Shipley School is, is leading the way um, in terms of uh, the entire school is based on a positive education model. So there are schools um, that have this. So, um uh, yeah, and there I could name schools in Australia that are that are that are doing this. It's very interesting to me, Scott, that you cite international sources because I have this sense that's been building over the last number of years um, that American culture and thus a lot of our schools are, are really, really um, mechanical, uh, hyper competitive in a particular way, like kind of built to like kind of trying to crush like a bunch of people through a gate that can only accept <laughs> like like some you know oh, yeah. like uh, like very small proportion of them and that we're all kind of trained this way that there, there's like a real um sort of competitive savagery to like a lot of like the american system uh and that extends from uh, our educational institutions to our economy which now our economy is like the most savage winner take all thing that you know in, in human history um uh at at this point um, and so when you talk about people who are working on positive education, like you're like, oh, the Aussies, <laughs> like, like, like the UK. And I'm just like, like you know, uh, come on, America. Like we like America genuinely needs like a massive uh, expansion of humanity. 
I mean, I, it, that's so well put. That, I wanted you to be president. <laughs> again, I'm just going to repeat that again. I'm just going to repeat that again. Like, that would have been such an um, uh, amazing... Uh, uh, oh, thank you. I to, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. No, but expansion of humanity is absolutely what we need. But um, if I may, if I may just go even a little bit further to more concrete proposals, because I really do believe in bringing data. I believe in evidence. I don't, um, I don't want to make arguments. You know, if if you try to build something on um, on just ideology, for instance, that's like building something on, uh, you know, a sandcastle. You know, like you need it to have uh, evidence based to to a certain degree, and you have to be flexible to update the evidence in light of new information. Um, so um, th I think that these falling uh, basic human needs are things we need to learn more in an education system, and they have a really strong evidence base in positive psychology and humanistic psychology for them. So need for connection. Okay, that's a big one. In our school system right now, um, kids are uh, profoundly lonely. Of course, right now, being virtual, that's even uh, even worse. And then so you have a uh, need for uh, safety, and that can include you know feeling as though your environment is, um, that you have a secure attachment to your environment. You know, attachment uh, theory comes into play here. It's important to have a secure attachment to your, not just your parents, but we don't often talk about the necessity of having a secure attachment to your teachers. You know, like, who's who's talking about that? <laughs> you know, um, and, and what that just means is that you feel like, you know, they have your back if you fail, if you fall down, you know, that you, you can trust. There's trust in your environment. We have a real trust crisis right now in America with each other. The next one in my revised hierarchy of needs is the need for self-esteem. Um, but I specifically talk about healthy self-esteem versus narcissism. We do see a lot of uh, narcissism around, you know, um, in the in the current generation. When I say that, the current generation of kids get mad at me. A lot of it's social media, man. I mean, there, there's like a real, you know, I mean, you literally have numbers attached to how many people like you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's different. So narcissism is, you know, how um, do you think you're, you're better than others? But just a healthy self-esteem is that you just think you're worthy. And I do think we have a, um, a crisis of people feeling as though they're a good lot of people enough. do not genuinely feel like they are, are mm -hmm. worthy. And, you know, and you made the argument in the Scientific American article that this is tied to um, the way we're treating people through things like uh, the economy or, or the lack of universal basic income. It was one of the points of my campaign was like, look, if you had universal basic income and then you could all look at your child and say, uh, your country loves you, your country values you and, and you're going to be all right and we're going to invest in you. Like, you know, and, and and as someone who's run organizations, I've made this argument um, is like, you can always tell if an organization's investing in you and if it's not. It takes you approximately two days to figure out if an organization's investing yes. in you. And, and right two now, seconds sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like right by the second day, you're like, okay, I, like I see what's going on here. And, and and this is one reason why when organizations put on these, frankly, kind of like sometimes uh, sort of like overdone or ridiculous like trainings or boot camps or in like uh, um, rituals and whatnot. Um, no matter how like frankly like dumb it is. Um, it actually still shows like a form of investment. Like they're trying, they're willing to like spend company time <laughs> on like, you know, like whatever the, the, the training rig moral is. That's actually a, an excellent sign in, in the scheme of things, um, even though some of those things are, you know, a little uh, ham-handed. Um, so right now our country, in my opinion, um, is not investing in people in a genuine way and people are kind of picking up on it. And then I mean, it's like, like, do you feel like you are worth something? You know, you can 
put on a brave face, but then like when you press on it, like a lot of people, you know, are, are struggling with it. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, and we're not, uh, we're not listening to each other's, uh, suffering, you know, we're, we're kind of putting our own suffering in a lot of ways as, uh, and in a lot of ways we're not realizing that a lot of other people are really going through, uh, a lot of this same kind of suffering, even if it takes a different form, yes. the basic need, the basic need is unfulfilled. And I, th I think, you know, it'd be wonderful if we could rally around the common humanity of the, uh, basic needs that are being unfulfilled versus, um, making everything into a coalitional thing where, you know, our suffering is, is so different. You would never understand, you know? Um, I, I mean, I just want to move towards a world where we, we try to understand at least. Well, well these are know. universal needs you've identified that it'd be very hard for anyone to argue against. It's like, look, like, shouldn't each of us have, uh, you know, like a feeling of connectedness and safety and esteem. Um, and so, so the values you're identifying right now um, are something of a recasting of Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, in your latest book, uh, which I believe is called Transcend. Is that right? Uh, this book came out um, fairly recently, I want to say just last year. Oh, look, well, yeah. look, look what I, I know. have well, here. For those of you who have the video, there's a copy of, of like uh, the book. Um, what's right, the, what's right this doing Scott. here? What's this doing um, here? Go ahead and read us the subtitle, Scott. Uh, yeah, it's The New Science of Self-Actualization. The New Science of Self-Actualization. So let's continue past uh, the, the need for esteem. Excellent. So first of all, Maslow never drew a pyramid. So that's a big misconception I talk about in the book that uh, everyone's, you know, everyone knows the, pyra the pyramid with like Wi-Fi yes. at the bottom <laughs> or yeah, toilet paper at the pyramid, bottom. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a meme. Um, it turns out Maslow never drew a pyramid. So I have a sailboat metaphor. So I argue that we have a boat uh, that needs to not have too many holes in it or else you don't go anywhere. But if you, if you just have all your holes, you know, um, if, you, if, you, if you just have the boat secure you're still not going to go anywhere unless you open up the sails and 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 risk going knowing that the winds could come crashing down anytime knowing that um uh, I don't know if that was the right metaphor. Winds. I don't know if winds crash down, but anyway, you see what I'm saying. Um, waves crashing down. Waves crashing down. Winds. You still so, need to go so in, in a purposeful direction. In your mind, direction. which is the bottom yeah. of the boat? Is that uh, safety? Is that connectedness and yeah. safety? So the boat is security, and and the uh, sail is growth. And the three needs that comprise security are these for safety, connection, and self-esteem. So the ones we just discussed was the boat. Like we already just all of the three of them are the like boat. the hull of the boat. Yes. I got it. That's the boat. That's the boat. Okay. And if you can have those three needs secure, you feel like you can start to explore the world in a way that you feel vulnerable. Yes, to I love it. And this is one Yay! of the arguments I was making, which was like, look, like you can't get people concerned about climate change if they can't put food on their table that day. You exactly. know what I mean? Like, like and so, exactly. the, so you have to address like the um, connectedness, safety, and esteem. So, what does the mast look like? Like, how can so you get this So, if you boat open moving? the sail, yes. If you open the sail, so whereas the base of security is safety, the base of the uh, sail is exploration. The need for exploration is. Um, a really deeply evolved need we share with other animals, but it takes unique manifestations in humans because we can bring in the intellect. We can bring in intellectual curiosity. That was another finding that I that I that I um, found in my dissertation research was that intellectual curiosity was not the same thing as IQ. Um, I found it was only about a 0 0.50 correlation. Oh, there there's some very uh, bright people mm -hmm. that are totally incurious. <laughs> not not curious at all. <laughs> yes, yes, not 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 one iota, not one iota. Um, so. 
um, being able to do what we call in our research, we call it cognitive exploration. So you can have behavioral exploration, like, you know, like Columbus set sail and, you know, that's the physical adventure seeking. But you can also have cognitive exploration, like the human imagination, you know, like human. A lot of it's just like, are you reading books and stuff? You know what I mean? But you're talking about Uh like the need to explore. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's the base. And, and if you can go, so when you open the sail, you are uh, moving with uh, the spirit of exploration. You're not driven, you're not driven by fear anymore. See, this is the distinction wow. that Maslow made between deficiency motivation versus uh, growth motivation. Wow. When you're, when you have a deficiency motivation, everything in your life, what you're trying to do is to make the world comport to your own. Uh, the, wow. The whole do we have a lot of deficiency motivation nowadays? Yes. <laughs> Exactly. We're living in a deficiency motivated nation. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. That's and correct. what, what uh, you know, the language I used on the campaign was mindset of scarcity, but it's, it's the same thing. Same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, because when you're hungry, right, you're saying feed me when you're when you're profoundly uh, lonely, you say, you know, like me um, when you don't feel like you've respect, then you start saying respect me. I deserve respect. But but all of that takes the flavor of the deficiency realm of human existence. When you can get to the if you can wow. uh, get to the being realm of human existence or the growth realm and open up that sale, you are no longer driven um, by what you are deficient in. You, um, uh, you're, you're very forward looking and you, you're driven by a, a spirit of exploration of the unknown and you're okay with the unknown. But most importantly, you have what Maslow called be love, love for the being of others. It's, it, you could think of it maybe like universal love, but I've tried to make the case in my book that the need for connection is different than be love. You can be very, very connected to people that um, share similar political beliefs or religious beliefs or, or in your in-group and have a lot of hate for anyone that you perceive to be in your out-group. But when you have being love, you really have a deep abiding um, love for the being of everyone that you meet. There's kind of a sacredness to the, the unique so, existence. So is, is that the sale? Is that the fifth thing after the need to explore? Sec- yes. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So uh, exploration and then love, be love. And then the third one is the need for purpose. So I argue it's a whole system. Okay, so if you're driven by a, a spirit of exploration, you have a humanitarian kind of loving sort of uh, orientation. On the or world. just like, look, I, you know, I, I'm I love people that uh, yes. may disagree with me or like I don't have certain things yes. in common with. Exactly. And you have a sense of purpose. Um, so it, it, from the sailing metaphor, you have a very clear vision of what island, where you're going, where you're going, even though you might be very far away from your going. And even though, you know, there's going to be a lot of setbacks, there's going to be like the, un- the sea is unknown, you know, like that's life, folks. <laughs> I'm sorry to like tell you Santa Claus doesn't exist, you know, in the sense, say, like, you know, life there's going to be a lot of unknowns <laughs> and, uh, and, but you still have to go, you still have to move. So, so one side of the ledger is deficiency motivation. The other one is growth motivation. Is that right? Growth or Maslow called it, um, the being realm of human existence. Sometimes he uses those two things, the B realm, the B realm. <laughs> so I think most people listening to this, um, can easily understand and relate to, uh, the need for connectedness, connectedness, safety, and esteem, uh, you know, if those th- those things aren't present, then it's very very difficult <laughs> to, 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 yes. to feel like, you know, you you can um, make positive things happen, or even that you know you deserve things like you you know do deserve a thousand bucks a month. I mean, you know, um, uh, and then the the higher order uh, needs are around um, 
the ability to explore, um, to love people that aren't like you necessarily, and then have a purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, if you ask many people, I think, you know, like, what is your purpose? They'll look at you like, you know, like, like it's a very, very odd question, frankly. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that think like even trying to ascertain your purpose is like a very privileged pursuit because at that point it must be that your other needs are being met. Um, and this is all tied together where there are so many Americans who are struggling right now in ways big and small that, you know, it's like, like trying to have someone trying to address some of these higher questions. Um, a lot of them aren't in position to, to be able to um, consider them very rightfully so, you know, and it's one reason why as a society we have to do a much better job of um, trying to address uh, people's sense of safety and connectedness and esteem uh, from day one. And, and I think our schools are not doing um, a good job of those things. It's not just schools. I mean, the fact is, like, one of the things I said on the campaign trail is that um, schools c- control about 35% of our kids' uh, educational outcomes. And then the other two-thirds are uh, family environments, um, income level, unfortunately, type of neighborhood number of words read to them when they're a child, stress levels in the household, like all, all of these things. Um, and so we're holding our schools in, in some ways to an impossible standard because, you know, if like a kid's going home to an environment where they're not going to be able to learn, it's like, well, you know, like, or, or in this case, you know, maybe they haven't been in school for a year, you know, like, uh, and so they're going to show up and, you know, it's like their their ability to catch up is going, going to be um, more constrained or diminished. Um, but th- this is an incredible... Um, uh, framework. Um, and it's something that I think uh, most everyone can understand and would agree with. Um, and it kind of builds on and adapts Maslow's work in, in a way that's, um, I, I think, um, very directed and, and actually more practical in a way. Because like, I think we've all heard Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And then you're like, all right, <laughs> like, see the pyramid. <laughs> Whereas I feel like your work is a little bit more um, instructive, like it moves us in a direction. Um, and, and these are the ideas um, from your book, Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and has the response to this book been, uh, been positive? I'm sure it has been. I'm sure a lot of people are excited about it. Yeah, I'm really, really pleased at the reception in the field of psychology. Um, uh, just almost uh, just universal uh Kind of is that that seems very immodest to say that universal praise, um, but um, <laughs> but it's like if that's but like I, I don't know how to say it in a, in a way that I that, that I don't come people like it. Like, it's okay, Scott. Yeah, you can people say that. like it's it. Fine. People like it. Um, I've just, I've just been very very pleased at the reception. Um, Aaron Beck, who um, uh, uh, the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, he's ninety. Uh, he's 99 years old and he wrote a blurb. He said, this is a significant advance in psychology. And so that was a, wow, such high praise. That must've been so meaningful to you. That was like, I was in tears, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that must've really given you some uh, B love. (laughs) Yes. 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 You're fulfilling your purpose, Scott. Um, I mean, you really are fulfilling your purpose. It's actually, so are um, you <laughs> like uh, tremendous to see and i i think when someone when, when someone's doing the kind of work that you can feel like comes from a very uh deep place within them and it's happening like people do sense it I, I think it's one reason why people are drawn to you i mean you're doing what you're meant to do for sure and you're making such incredible contributions um if someone wants to uh keep up with you support your work 
um, find out more about your ideas? Like how, how can they uh, follow you or get in touch? Oh, thanks, Andrew. Oh, well, my webpage, scottbarrykaufman.com, I have kind of everything everything there. So my podcast, I, I host the Psychology Podcast, which um, all the episodes can be found on there. And I have free, I have resources section. Um, you know, if you're a parent, you're a teacher, or you're just a, you're an adult and you want to self-actualize, I have lots of free resources. So I kind of put everything there on my, my webpage. I also have on there some tests, self-actualization tests I developed and scientifically validated. They can tell you um, what your main sources of self-actualization are, but I also have a test that tells you where you are on the dark side or the light side of the Star Wars Force. It actually is a scientifically validated test that can kind of tell you, you know, if you need to work a little more on being Okay, a, a people, good, good I know person. you don't like tests, <laughs> but you know what you love? You love those quizzes that tell you fun things about yourself. Um, so... Head, head to Scott's website uh, to find out how uh, light or dark your force is um, uh, and, and uh, where you are uh, in terms of self-actualization. I think you're going to get a lot of takers, man, from this uh, recording because who does not want to know how self-actualized they are? I'm so glad we finally got to connect, Scott. Uh, you're a force for humanity, uh, and mm. I'm thrilled um, to have someone like you fighting for the positive changes that so many of us know we need in the world um yeah consider me a friend and ally and um hopefully we will uh, have more people see how important your work is um and then most importantly uh, actually make the changes necessary in the real world to be able to prepare um our kids and our people for what's to come thank you that that means a lot to me it was so fun talking to you today thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast if you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in on the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.